This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The drama has, is heightened right now from what we understand. By the way, we Fernando, I've <laughs> never met you before in person, so I'm Kenny. It's no. nice to meet you, nice and I love you. your you music in Blockbuster. You Thank absolutely you. crushed it. Thank you. Uh, and Amazing. I don't know, uh, the journalist in me wants to ask when the next season of uh, Blockbuster is coming out. I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, Matt. It's all top secret under lock and key okay. for, for the time being. Uh, we'll, we'll, uh, Kenny, you may or may not have a bit role in, uh, in the, the next. I'm returning. Well. This continue is be- your voice acting. Oh, wow. I'm like Sarah Paulson in American Horror Story for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> or like Jessica Chastain in anything. Right, right. Really. You're a recurring character, though, <laughs> you know. All right, so Fernando Arroyo Lascarain was the uh, composer on Blockbuster, so that's how I met Fernando. He is also a session violinist, um, really, really talented musician in so many ways. Uh, composer, uh, has worked with some great composers around town or in, in L.A., and, uh, and currently has a SWAT team or something going through his neighborhood. <laughs> What's going on there? What's the latest? Well, the latest is that this is the second time it's happened since I moved to Los Feliz. And well, what did you do? I don't know. What are they after I, you for? Well, so far they haven't asked for my name specifically, <laughs> so that's I a think good Fernando, come out now yeah. with your violin up. Yeah. What if this is a? <laughs> Maybe they just want a free concert. I this would know. be an amazing video if that actually happened. That would be quite a surprise, right in the middle of it. <laughs> um, Fernando, just yeah. tell us a little bit about I, what I wanted to to do in this stream is talk a little bit about the orchestra, mm-hmm. the power of the orchestra. A lot of people, especially younger composers, tend to start out writing other things and not using um, even samples as much. Even though there's some great samples mm-hmm. that are around. But um, but the orchestra is something that has stuck around for hundreds of years and evolved a little bit, too, but has stuck around for hundreds of years because it has certain properties that are very, very difficult to um, emulate and uh, mm-hmm. even with samples. And it's kind of a magical experience. And you are in this position of being someone who is an incredibly uh, gifted and, and disciplined and skilled uh, player. But also, you see things from the other side too, the composer side of things. Um, mm-hmm. So, give us a sense of like what your job, what the job of a session musician is when you're going in to record on a film. Well, the biggest part of the job is just coming in prepared with your overall skills, so keeping your uh, level of playing up to a standard, so that you can perform for the composers. Because uh, we don't get to see most of the time, we don't get to see the music in advance. And when we do, you know, usually it comes in maybe a day before the session, at most two. Um, so the, the our job is to try to give a musical performance and as pristine a performance as we can within very few takes. Uh, a great example is that just this past weekend, on Saturday, we did a, a session for the USC film scoring program. 
and they have a session with a big orchestra towards the end of the year. And, you know, that's those sessions are some of the most challenging ones, but also the most uh, fun ones to an extent because we get to play extremely different styles from completely different composers. And each composer gets about 20 minutes of recording time. And it perfectly exemplifies what the job of a studio musician is, which is in a short amount of time to deliver the best performance possible. How often would you say a a you know that that the caliber of um musicians that will record a film score how often can they nail it on the first try uh, it depends on a lot of things it depends on the style of the music i will say often it will sound like something very good already unless the music is very complicated um but most of the times the first time you hear it played through you'll already get an idea of the piece and maybe the little things that will be there would be like a wrong note here, a wrong note there, or it will be a little, it will be more musical things. But for example, in this last session, it's a great example, this session, because there's so many things. There were several pieces that were slower or more emotional or, uh, or simply were the parts, the sheet music was laid out very well. So in the first time we played it through, it already sounded great. Um, and that's usually the case. It will already sound like something, unless it's a very virtuosic piece. Do you, is there, go ahead. I was Jim. just going to say, do you remember what you played first on when you were sight reading? And when do you realize that you're at that level? Like, okay, I'm one of, I'm, I'm at the caliber to be able to sit down and pull out a sheet of music and play flawlessly on this piece with, Oof. with no rehearsal, with no, you know, extra practice or anything like that sorry i just got an email there let me close that window um i guess there's a lot of practice you know, <laughs> yeah there's all well sight reading is a practice as well uh and it's funny enough that this happened way beyond before i came to the u.s uh i'm not to the u.s to la when i was living in new york because i was a violinist and a composer a lot of my composer friends asked me to play their music and many times they would want to have a recording session that it was just literally uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of time. It was that day. We will show up. I look at the music and I perform it. And many times it was complicated, uh, new music. And just being forced into that, it made me realize, okay, it's it's fine. There are skills that I have. Um, and the first time it happened here in town was actually for a K-pop session. Hmm. <laughs> So it was, uh, yeah, there was a lot of runs and interesting things. And, you know, I felt fine with it. There's obviously stress with certain things that we play. And this, no matter your caliber of player, sometimes we get some music and we just look at it and go, oh, that's going to be something to look at. A great, a great story is uh, about when John Williams recorded the Hedwig's theme before the film was even, uh, you know, finished before he actually wrote the film score just for the trailer. And uh, that string part is insanely difficult, so much so that now it has become uh, an excerpt in orchestral auditions for professional orchestras. Like the New York, the LA Phil and the New York Phil asked for it. And there's a video of the concertmaster of that session, and she's saying, you know, we arrive the day of the session, we open our parts and we see black. And says, I've never heard so much frantic practicing in my life before. And these are players that many of them played in the Star Wars scores, in 
you know, a bunch they're of jumps, of course, and it's just, they're the best in London. And it's just, you know, they, uh, they still stressed out about it, but it sounds great. And that just tells you the caliber of the players that when you listen to the, to the recording, even though these players didn't get like a lot of practice, you're hearing and it already sounds very professional. It sounds fantastic. Well, I have a couple friends who are stand-up comedians, and this is like the complete opposite mm -hmm. of that, right? Because when you're a stand-up comedian, the more you do your performance, the more you perfect it and you fine-tune it, much like a mm -hmm. band playing a song. But you're the opposite where mm -hmm. like no matter how many times you play on a session, the next time you come in – you're a stand-up comedian that has no idea what your jokes are, but you're supposed to perform them yeah. to perfection. So, like, are you ever yeah. fully confident, or do you just, like, have butterflies all the time? That seems like it would be so nerve-wracking mm. to have no clue what you're supposed to play up until the last last minute. You know, it depends. It depends on the situation. I remember my first session that I was, uh, that I was stressed out. Um, it was a small demo session. And it was uh, at the Bridge Studios, which have closed down and recently have reopened. In Glendale, um, right? And it was just, a, yeah, in Glendale. And it was just a string session. And I was coming from teaching in the Pacific South Palisades. And for those who don't know, that's about 13 miles away from uh, from Burbank. And, the, uh, and, you know, I arrived with five minutes to spare, which I usually don't. I usually, because of the traffic. And I usually try to arrive at least half hour in advance so I can look through the music and whatnot. And the music wasn't necessarily challenging, but I was pretty new to the scene still. And I was at the only spot chair that was open still was the third chair of the violin. So I was sitting amongst very seasoned players, you know. And immediately I got butterflies. And because you, you can doubt yourself and you go, oh, this is tough. But. You know what's interesting when it comes to the difficulty of the music? It's interesting that a lot of composers think that playing long notes, very soft long notes, is the easiest thing for us to do. It's actually the most nerve-wracking thing to do, especially if it's very high. And that's when we start feeling like that, because it creates tension, it creates all these things, and we start getting a shaky bow, or the sound can break, and you know your arm starts to get tired when it happens for a long period of time. And uh, whereas sometimes if it's a run or something virtuosic, when we're in the room, uh, you know, we kind of have each other's back. So we go for it. And it's not as scary as you would think. It's funny what's, what's, uh, what gives you butterflies and what <laughs> doesn't, you know? Is, yeah. is there um, – I, I guess I wanted to talk broadly about the orchestra uh, a little mm -hmm. bit first. And – Specifically, the the sections of the orchestra. I mean, we could go on for days, probably about a lot of a lot of these kind of big picture evolutions that have happened over mm -hmm. the years. But what do you see as the main kind of voices in an orchestra? The sections that are constantly in communication with each other throughout a a you know whether it be a symphonic piece or a scoring session, recording session. You know, I think it's interesting that uh, we have different choirs in the orchestra, and that's kind of how we think of as composers, different colors, different sounds. But ultimately, as players, we're constantly thinking of chamber music, right? So let's say I have, uh, you know, this in the violins. I'm playing first violin. 
and I have a soaring melody. But then at some moment, I hear the French horns take over. Then maybe we'll pull back a little bit. Or maybe we don't because they're loud enough, you know? But we're constantly listening to each other. Now, there is a thing that uh, happens between communication that it sort of goes, I'll, I'll say in a professional orchestra, the two highest paid musicians are the concertmaster and the timpanist. The reason for the timpanist is because they're the backbone of the orchestra, you know? Um, and we're always listening for those kind of things. We're listening for the percussion rhythm across the sections. Uh, woodwinds are listening to each other for color and how they're going to blend because the color of woodwinds are the most uh, diverse sounds, you know, and for them to tune sometimes it's very difficult. So they're hearing that amongst themselves, but also kind of keeping their ears out. In the strings, we're often thinking about our bow stroke, what it sounds like, uh, where we are on the bow, what kind of color we hear the cellos doing. So if they do a phrasing that is a certain kind of color, then they uh, um, then we try to imitate it in the violins and the violas and whatnot. It's uh, We always keep our ears out for every single choir of the orchestra. These days in film scoring, what you have a lot of is strings as a driving motor and maybe some held notes and stuff like in the more uh, Hans Zimmer school of film scoring, you know, this is very common. And I say Hans Zimmer school because a lot of people have taken on his style and uh, built on, the, on it. But the two uh, sections that you hear the most of orchestra, traditional orchestra, are brass and strings. And the strings are many times the motor and the brass are many times the melodic thing or harmony or, you know. So we, and sometimes we have, you know, seven, eight horns, 12 horns sometimes, you know, Does and that a tell bunch you of trombones when, and trumpets. When you come into a, a room and you see a much bigger brass section than you would have yes. expected, what does that tell you? It's going to be loud and meaty. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and then many times, you know, what's fascinating is that the second we open the music, we often can tell what kind of piece it's going to be without even hearing it because of the... You know, just the way it looks, and there's these tropes that have developed throughout music for years, you know. So whether it's the concert hall, if I open something and I know it's from the classical period, uh, you can already tell the sort of sound we're going for. So the orchestra, if you have great musicians, they'll adapt their sound concept to that. Uh, we'll know that the woodwinds, for example, are more of a support for harmony with a solo here or, here or there. Uh, when it comes to film scores, you open something, see a bunch of runs and glissandos and then a pizzicato and things like that. And say, okay, this is probably a comedic uh, score, you know? Oh, or, interesting. Uh, so just at a glance, yeah. you can kind You're of You're like get a reading sense the of, script of, almost, yeah. Yeah. Almost to an extent because you look at it and you, say, you see if there's a lot of meter changes or, you know, just little things like that. Um, also, orchestrators, which is a great tool to have. We don't like a lot of words in the music, but orchestrators will say things like playful or uh, with intent, or let's say uh, some of them like to put in sometimes stuff that is just hilarious, you know? <laughs> like uh, I saw Bruce Dukov, who's a great concertmaster and violinist here in the studios. He posted years ago a photo of a part that, uh, that he uh, was playing on. I think it was one of the X-Men movies. And it said, Dukov stroke, <laughs> like Dukov bow stroke, 
you know, and that was the direction of the orchestrator. And it's in jest a little bit, but it's also, you know, kind of telling us a lot about the music. You, mm -hmm. you um, use the word color when you're talking yeah. about um, sound, mm -hmm. and I, I always find this interesting, um, and there's some people that probably know exactly what you're talking about, but in case mm -hmm. someone doesn't, and, and I would like to know what how you define this, but there are certain people that hear music and see color is that the case? Yes. Do you develop that at some point, or are you using that in general well, terms, or do you have? When I talk about color, yeah, I think I think there's there's two things. When I talk about color, I do actually have synesthesia, which is uh, you know that you see colors with music and so on. But that develops as you get older. You know, it changes. Uh, when I was a kid, it was more specific. But in this case, when I'm talking about color, I'm talking more about the tone. So. I was getting my violin here really quickly just to oh, show you yeah. guys a little Bring bit it out. what I mean about that. Um, so there are certain things when it comes to color. Uh, the greatest section you can see this with is with the brass. And there's something that a lot of people that are, you know, learning to orchestrate or whatnot, they make this mistake often, that they think color, like mutes, are the easiest way to change the color of an instrument because it actually changes the way this, the instrument is resonating. And a lot of people that are uh, learning to orchestrate often make the mistake with brass instruments, for example, thinking that a mute means softer, but not in reality, it means a change in color because the instruments can still play quite loud with it. So let me move my stand a little bit back so you guys can see. So when I talk about color, you know, I can play this note like that, you know? Now let's say I want it to be a little bit brighter. I can play closer to the bridge. It's much brighter if I can play closer to the uh, to the fingerboard. And I'm not changing the bow pressure at all, but these three things, you hear oh, how yeah. the color changed throughout the notes. And how much vibrato I use. If it's slower vibrato, or if it's faster and wide, or if it's small and fast, you know, all of those things change a lot of how we play something. Uh, then we have mutes, and even with mutes, different players will have different ones, so it'll sound different. This is a very nice solo mute. And then I have this other mute, which I use for orchestra when I need quick changes, which sounds different as well. You know? I hope all of so this that's is coming we mean. through the AirPods. They may, I'm, I'm hearing it a little yeah. bit, but it's probably much crisper yeah. in person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In person, you hear more with microphones and, you know, it's, it's not as clean. Uh, but... Basically, each, each, each tone and also what it means is that uh, how we play things in terms of the sound quality. So meaning um, if I'm playing something very Baroque, right? Maybe I go very light. Now, let's say this is in a. I don't know, like in a comedic score. It's a 
a lot more. It's a bit more crisp, the sound, yep. you know? So all these things are things we consider as musicians, and we try to make those decisions immediately as we play. And what's fascinating about session work is that there's character immediately in the music because it's attached to a scene, you know? And film music is so telling of what the scene is about. Uh, or at least we try to make it so. Or it's so telling about what we're trying to express. You know, they always say, some great composers say, you score either the action or the audience or why the character is running, you know? Like why the character is doing that action. So we, it's our job to try to bring that out. And the second we start playing, we sort of get an idea of what's happening and we make all these tiny decisions in a split second. It's probably about 20 decisions in a microsecond from the moment we read a note and we read the dynamic, we read the texture, everything to what we're listening to saying, let's say for brass players, what the volume is going to be, what the sound, the tone is going to be, uh, what position they're going to play it in for like trombones or same for us for string players, what stroke we're going to play, we're in the bow, all these little things come in immediately. And that's part of the skill of a session musician being able to make those decisions. I hadn't thought about the the actual session players seeing the screen because if you look Read at a screen session most of the time, you know, you there you're you're oriented in a way that is either kind of looking at a 90 degree angle or your back is to the screen. How much yeah. can you actually get a sense of of the feeling of an image when you're in that kind of situation? I know it's probably mostly meant for the composer or conductor. Um, yeah, but you must get a certain feeling of that, especially maybe in the mm -hmm. the violin or the the string section um, on either side. You can or, see. It or in to your add to that, yeah. to add to that question, are, is there a moment where maybe a specific scene helps you to see it, and they'll say, "Everyone, turn around and watch this for a second, so you can get yes. a sense of it." Oh, yes, I think a lot of the times the scenes where that is happening is where people will say that or explain the composer or the conductor might explain what the scene is about is when it's an emotional scene and when maybe we're not hitting the right emotional tones. But another thing that's important to, to understand is that I think that if the music is written well, and if it gives us the information we need, we don't need to look at the screen because one of the most amazing things about music, in my opinion, and the reason why it also works so well, in film scores is because music is abstract in, a, in an emotional sense that, you know, the composer can give us the general tone of the emotion. So let's say I can listen to like a piece and uh, say, oh, it's sad, you know, but each individual can then take that and apply it to their own version of sad or their own emotions and experiences. And as players, we do that as well. And we sort of create this sound, this emotional uh, connection to the music and it's uh sometimes we do need that guidance but you know a lot of times we don't have time to really look at the screen even if it's somewhere we can we maybe like we'll steal a glance or two but there's no sound there's nothing it's like we just literally see and they go oh okay you know there's no we don't hear anything we just see the screen and many times in certain films the effects will not be done a lot of things will not be finished, you know, when we look at it. So that's a very different feeling. And for me as a composer as well, it's the same thing. When I'm 
writing something, what the final film looks like will have a different feel than what it looked like when I first saw it, you know? Is it, uh, is it blasphemous yeah. for you to make a suggestion in a, in a session? Like if something, if they're, if they're not, it's not working out, can you say, what if we did this? Or is that like nobody would ever think yes, of doing something? but usually that's the, definitely. But that's usually the section leaders that suggest this. Um, if it's within the section, we maybe, somebody might suggest something quietly to the section leader and then they suggest it. But there is a hierarchy. And generally it will be the section leaders, mostly the concert master for the strings. <coughs> Sorry. And for the brass, you know, the trumpet player or the horn, the principal horn or, you know, there will be suggestions often. It's collaborative. Well, you 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 brought up when you walked in, you you pick your chair. So this is an interesting mm -hmm. topic that we haven't really talked about on our show or or anything. Is mm -hmm. there's there's the section leader, and then is it the rest? It's kind of like uh, when you go into a classroom on the first day, you just find your seat, and then are you in that same seat the rest of the time? Yeah. Like, can you explain how the seating arrangement works and what that hierarchy is? Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes so before COVID. Because all of this has changed since then. Before COVID, some sessions will tell you where to sit. You know, some concert masters, some section leaders have specific. This is mainly for the strings. For the brass, it's always very, it's already set up before you even come in. <coughs> Sorry. And uh, it's already set up before you even come in for brass, percussion, and wings. For strings is where this happens. And sometimes the concertmaster will tell, tell you, oh, sit over here or sit somewhere to the front or whatever you want. Or sometimes it's just free seating. Everybody sits wherever they want. And usually the front row of the strings is more set. So like the principals, so like concertmaster, principal second violins, principal viola, principal cello and principal bass are set by the contractor. <coughs> Sorry, and uh, um, they'll choose who sits next to them. Hmm. And then, but now since COVID, <coughs> sorry, my allergies are <laughs> today. <coughs> but since COVID, now for safety reasons, they often tell us where to sit. So the con the contractor will send you either a number or a or your name will be on the stand huh. where you're going to sit, or they send a list in advance. Interesting. So would there be, and I, I imagine that also post-COVID, as, as things are kind of opening up mm -hmm. again, um, it's you don't, aren't going to get the same size of, of uh, players in one space as you used yeah. to. Yeah. I mean, maybe there are some cases, you know, if everyone's vaccinated at some point, you know, it would maybe mm -hmm. make sense. But... Um, but it seems like we might be a little further off from that. So what are you seeing in kind of the days returning to these, you know, these, these rooms that have so much, have had so much music played in them before and what mm -hmm. the sessions are looking like nowadays? Well, I'll tell you, like what's been happening is they've been doing ses sections, <coughs> sessions by section. So like the strings will record one day, the brass another day and woodwinds another day, you know? Um, and precaution and stuff like on another day. But the session we did for USC, 
was the first time I've played in over a year with a full ensemble on the scoring stage. It was a reduced ensemble, like there were single winds, three horns only, I think, two trumpets maybe. So a little smaller than usual. Yeah, and the strings were much smaller. But I think, I think there's a value to that, you know, because this is more me as a composer. Uh, obviously, larger string sections is always nicer to an extent because you can do more. Um, but I think it also will think will bring back a little bit of more thoughtful orchestration in general, because when you have a smaller ensemble, you have to think more about how you're going to make it sound big, you know, or how you make it sound balanced. And this from the orchestrator composer side. As players, uh, what's been interesting to adapt to is the distance between us. That's different. So your ears kind of have to adapt differently. Um, you probably hear yeah, a lot I mean, more I, of yourself playing mm -hmm. now. Exactly. But it's also, a lot of it is also like tuning or listening what's happening, you know. And funny enough, a lot of it is also even just uh, somebody makes a comment. Let's say the section leader says, oh, let's play this on the, on the, you know, at the tip or whatever, you know, let's bow this this way. And if you're sitting in the back, you're not going to hear it. You're like, what? You know, oh yeah that happens often um but one well, another consideration that a lot of people need to have now for string players is that many times we get a lot of notes and there's no page turns what do you mean before so we have to turn the page as we're playing right you know you can't do that now and well we can but the music's gonna stop because we're sitting separate instead of a stand partners. Because what happened before is that your stand partner would turn the page as you keep playing, and then they'll join back in. But they can't be close enough to you to turn the page. No. That's... Well, no, because we all have individual stands. Right, right. Well, we were, t we so were talking with... Uh... The music just, the, the violin, the whole section, I guess, would just stop as you change mm -hmm. pages. Page... Uh, yeah. We we had a discussion with Tom Holkenborg about how he did mm -hmm. Justice or uh, the Snyder cut of Justice League all remotely mm -hmm. and how a, a huge disaster it was because everyone was recording separately at home and he was yeah. he, he made an interesting point that I didn't think about which is normally an orchestra playing together you play off of each other and if you're having not the best yeah. day of playing you kind of get carried by your team but when you're recording solo it's mm -hmm. like someone trying to take a selfie like they they keep taking the picture over and over to get the best lighting and you you end up exactly. with these like perfect takes so i'm curious did you ever record during the pandemic and then versus like going back <clears throat> I in did. how much how much does that help you just to remember what it's like to be in the room with everybody like that you know i was lucky enough that I was still doing some sessions throughout all of this, not at the very beginning, but then once little things started to open up, there were certain contractors that would call me. Uh, and it was very small at the beginning. It was, I remember the first thing I did was maybe four violins, you know, and that was, and we were really separated and getting used to playing with the mask and all these other things, you know, but um, yeah, it is an adjustment getting back to it. But I think, it's not as difficult adjusting to that than recording from home. Recording from home is really, really complicated. I played one session that was uh, one film that was that, and 
they had what would be the natural size of a full orchestra. So I think there was something like 34 violinists. The music was very challenging, a lot of virtuosic stuff, which when you're in a room, the sound of the room helps you. The sound of the entire orchestra helps you. So, you know, maybe you miss one little note, as you said, well, as Tom said, and, and you miss one little note and somebody else will catch it. But when you're recording yourself, yeah, it's like a microscope goes on you, right? And you also hear it back. You become more self-critical. You hear every squeak and you're like, oh, yeah. So it's it's been interesting. And I think actually I think that prepared me very well for this was recording all the strings for the blockbuster soundtrack. <laughs> so I record all the violins and violas for that. And I just recorded myself over and over and over and over. Yeah, it was like and, 12 uh, of you. <laughs> yeah, it was 12 of me. And... Uh, and, you know, it teaches you a lot. And I think recording from home has actually made a lot of people very aware of the mics, you know, and what actually sounds. So it's interesting. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like people are now their own forward. samples. When you play that yeah. perfectly, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it takes that human element of the, you know, the live take where it's just like if you take a picture with 50 people in the photo, someone's going to be screwed up in the photo. Someone's always going to be mm -hmm. like, Someone and you, you're never going to get all 50 of the class exactly. photo perfectly unless you review it and look back on it. So that, yeah, you're right. Exactly. And that's okay. You know what? That's okay because part of the human part, human thing that samples kind of recreate is that difference. You know, what makes a string sound sound like a string is that we won't be perfectly in tune together all the time because there's fluctuations in our vibrato, in our uh, pitch, you know. So one of the things having to track myself for something like Blockbuster was that I learned that I needed to play slightly different each take. Because if not, since it's the same player, and I played it on different violins with different bows and stuff like that, so that the tone would be slightly different. Yeah, you might as well double it up if you're going to play it exactly the same, right? Exactly. And then it faces, you have some bad phasing and it sounds bad. And then what you do sound exactly. And yeah. then what you do is you try to create that, that effect. Cause that's what a string section sounds like. But even in the concert hall, one thing that samples. So when I hear mock-ups that sound very robotic, usually it's because they're too perfect, you know, and you hear it mainly in things like, for example, the brass, will attack, they will have them at the highest velocity and they will attack ta -ka -ta 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 -ta, perfectly together. But in the real world, one of the notes might not be exactly right. The third trumpet might be playing tiny bit earlier than the you know. And I program that when I do my mock-ups because that's part, of, um, that's part of making it human, you know, and making it more real. Yep. If you just have, and, that, and that's the beauty of having real players, you know. It's because you can get into that uncanny valley when things are very, um, very uh, robot-like, you know, just very quantized and perfect. And all the I time. mean, I guess it would make sense. There would be a place for music that does sound slightly robotic. Like, I guess the first mm -hmm. thing that comes to mind would be kind of like a little bit of what uh, Ludwig did for Tenet, which is taking mm -hmm. orchestral stuff and then it being so kind of but obviously it has to match the character of what you're yes. trying to make 
It can't be, you mm-hmm. know, some some big classical cinema sounding thing and sound robotic. Yeah, and that's course specific. They use the orchestra more like a textural instrument, you know, something to kind of create these interesting sounds and colors. Again, we talk about colors, these interesting timbres and textures. Uh, yeah, it depends what you're going for. And sometimes you really want that like uh, uh, super robotic playing in a way. I mean, you hear it in um, one of the scores where I remember hearing a little bit of that was in um, Speed uh, Speed Racer with Michael Giacchino. You know, yeah. the strings have all these like fast runs and arpeggios, but they're going with uh, with what some synths are doing. And it really works very nicely when things are very tight because it feels like it's a video game kind of, you know? Right. Yep. So that's part of that yeah. sometimes work. Most of the composers uh, we talk to in w- w- pretty much every composer, I think there's maybe a handful <laughs> that are in your position where they've actually played on the orchestra um, that they're writing a score for maybe at some point in the future. But how how valuable is that for you to be in the chair playing and knowing what's involved with that? Because like I said, most of the composers have never done that before. So they don't have that experience. What do you take from that uh, being in both sides of the, the glass, if you will? The biggest thing I take on is uh, what not to do, <laughs> you know, because there's little things that will keep your session going and things that will stop it on a halt. But there's also things that uh, when we're sight reading for a film score, it's different than playing, let's say, a Beethoven symphony that we've heard 10,000 times. We know what it sounds like, even if we've never played it. There's some music we've never seen before. When I'm sight reading, there's certain things in how you notate it or what you write that sound like a good idea, but they're actually not a good idea, you know? And knowing that playing in the orchestra is very valuable, you know? Um, There's certain things that you might get the gist of what you're going for, but then it might be easier to write in a way that the players can just read it like that and you'll get the effect. Um, and that's something that unless you're playing in the orchestra, many times you don't know. Because there's many things that we as players talk about in terms of like, oh, I wish I would have seen that written that way. Or, you know, it could have been easier to do it this way, more idiomatic. And you talk about all these things. And also you learn the relationships between the players, between the sections of the orchestra, as we talked earlier. And, you know, one of the things I think I heard Conrad Pope say this. We're in the recording in the industry, not the in the recording business, not the music business. And what that means is that what might sound great in a concert hall, you know, where you're going to hear the orchestra from far away, uh, the players are going to have plenty of time to look at the music most of the time, not always, but uh, and at least a couple of rehearsals, you can write certain things that are more challenging, you know. But I'll give you a great example. Um, fast runs and arpeggios on the strings, or even the woodwinds. Many times I've heard it in so many orchestration classes. I've heard many great pros that I admire and everything say, you know, you can write fast runs and arpeggios for the strings, for the violins, because they do this all day long. They practice this all day long. And yes, we do, but it's a warm up and we practice for specific things. And in the context of a piece, it's different. You know, because we cannot just go, you know, and there's little tricks that you can use 
to make that sound the same way, but much smoother and easier, you know? Um, I've played some scores where, you know, we'll have a quarter note, like a hundred for like this. And they want us to play two octave run in one beat. Impossible. It's not going to happen, you know? There's just your fingers kind of move that fast. What do you do if something's not possible? Have you been in a session where something literally can't be done? And then what, what happens? Yeah, it is, seems does like it done? that actually, <laughs> that probably happens we a make lot, it happen with composers. But how do you... Professional faking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll show you. So if I have a fast string scale, let's say even if it's an octave, let's say A flat major, right? Right, and I'm playing it, kind of playing all the notes. But if it's faster than that, I might go. You just so you get the same effect, it. but it's kind of I'm sort of skipping some notes and just throwing my hands. And one thing that we always aim for is first note and last note. You know, <laughs> that's basically what we're trying to do. And sometimes you just go for it. The problem is when it's things that are not runs that are supposed to be more clear, and that's going to be um, a problem. And one issue that I see a lot of the times people run into is that they'll say, can we get a little bit more power on that virtuosic <laughs> thing? Yeah. And the reality is that the reason you're not getting a lot of power is because we're playing very safe so that you don't hear all the mistakes that might happen because it's not playable. So we try to fix it in ways that you can... Um, make it happen. So for example, uh, a great way, and this is more of a tip for composers, is that uh, doing the Tchaikovsky dovetailing thing. Let's say we want uh, two octave runner. You know? This is not that difficult, right? But if it's going too fast, it might be easier to do this. Like half of the first violins or the second violins just play. And then the first violins take over here. You know? But yep. there's... The, I mean, that is not a difficult run. I could play both octaves easily. But there's things like this, so considerations like this. When it comes to the brass, for example, uh, making sure you have breaths, enough breaths for the instrument. Uh, for the woodwinds, the same thing. It's like a... Now, this is mostly um, an orchestrator's job to be... An orchestrator's job. But also as a composer to an extent, because now with DAWs, you often have... Um, you know, you can play something as a pianist. A figure as a pianist and you really want it to sound like that and the orchestrator has to try to figure out something clever to it or sometimes there's no way around it you have to write what the composer wrote you know and many times it's just not possible you know and and little things like what I talked about earlier about long held soft notes for a long time you know like little things like that <laughs> and the composers don't often like think about these things because, you know, and I've had it myself that I get wrapped up in a, you know, in writing something. And if it's going to be played by live players, I have to bring myself back and say like, that's not going to work, you know? Do For example, with the, yeah, go ahead. Okay. I was going to say, do, do most people in your position want to be a composer? How many of the players you're sitting with? want to mm. do do a piece or is this just kind of like is it like players i don't you know, think basketball many. team that want to be a coach and only a couple people are set out for something like that 
I, I think only a couple of people. I think a lot of people have curiosity about it, but most players, I think, are fine, content being players, you know? But I do know a couple of people that want to do it. The thing is that that transition from player to composer is harder. Um, depends on what kind of music you want to write, of course. Um, I, I trained as both, so I'm lucky to be able to have already been doing both for my entire professional life but the more you try to transition just from being a player into a composer it's harder you know just because you're sort of catching up to what other people are doing um in terms of just getting work uh but yeah it's not it's not i feel like uh from the people that are in the brass section is where i see more people that are composers because a lot of them are jazz guys that mm. they write their tunes, they arrange, and they're amazing at it too, you know? So I think a lot of them have more curiosity about it or are actually doing it. So We talked about, uh, Kenny asked a good question about how, how playing in an orchestra, uh, sorry, other way around, how being a mm -hmm. composer um, has, has informed you a little bit about uh, playing in an orchestra. But mm -hmm. I'm curious about the other side of that too, and being a composer how that changes the way that you view the other players that you're you're sitting around and the character that they bring to a, a musical piece and and how you can harness their energies in a way as a composer um what you must think slightly differently about that now you know being so involved mm -hmm. in the composing side too mm -hmm. yeah you know i always since I started composing, my goal, even when I first started composing as a teenager, my goal was always, since I played, to, to write something that was interesting for the players to write. And that hasn't changed. Because the thing is that even if I'm writing something simple, there's little things that I can do that will keep the player engaged. If you keep the player engaged, you're more likely to have a great performance. If at some point I just open my score and see, you know, 20 measures of a single long note played pianissimo, I'm just going to be counting, you know, because I'm yep. worried about skipping that. We have the counter many times that we can follow and see the bar number that we're in. But as the, as the session goes later and later, it's easier for players to sort of, you know, check out a little bit. Listen, we're professionals, so we don't really do it and we'll still give the best performance possible. But it is hard to do that, you know? It takes a lot of work. Whereas when we see something, if I write something that engages the player, you know, or that those things that players enjoy to do, you know, like in the violins, an octave lead for like a nice place to slide or, you know, or just something like in the way that I write the dynamic or where I write it or where I break up the, uh, a sustain note, for example, all of those little things can make the players stay engaged and therefore play with more, uh, with more intent, you know? And I think that's a big thing that a lot of the times we don't think about, that we get so wrapped up in writing what we hear because the players will make it happen. That's a reality. And we'll fix a lot of issues and you'll never find out, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's common all, all the time. The other day, uh, at the film scoring session, the USC scoring program session, we had Pete Anthony was running it. He was the conductor. And then at the end, he asked the players to talk about, you know, to give some feedback.
to the students and uh, the English horn player who was doubling a novel because we have only single uh, wins uh, said you know there are some notes that were written on the English horn that they're too high we we can play them but we really don't usually play them because they just the timbre doesn't work as well and but you know we fix it and make it happen and then Pete said that's the problem that sometimes you guys are such pros that you fix it and we never notice <laughs> you know and we do it do you, too because it's, you have to keep the session running you right. know do you conduct as well yeah i don't i don't really love conducting but i i will if i need to and i know how to conduct but yeah not yeah <laughs> although if it's my own music and it's a session i rather conduct than be in the booth because i want to see you know it's faster for me to say what i need to and i know what needs to be redone what doesn't um but yeah i mean i enjoy conducting it's just uh you know when it comes to film scoring conducting is very different than actual concert conducting you know we really are a metronome mainly and a visual reference and we can help the musicians do things but ultimately our job is to make sure things get done properly um, is there is there something that you know because a lot of our listeners on this and and the podcast are aspiring composers that are trying to break in is there something that mm -hmm. you can think back on that like damn i'm so glad i learned how to do this or is there a skill that you acquired or worked at in your early goings of your career that really helped you catapult to the next level something that you can pass on to to those aspiring composers I would say uh, being prepared in terms of your knowledge of music in general, like the craft of writing, because then when you meet with somebody that actually needs you to do a job, you'll be able to do it or even just in talking with them, they'll know if you're prepared to do this or not. You know, so for example, one thing that I always tell people is um, we get so wrapped up in listening to the scores that we love. Uh, but studying the scores of the great composers of the past and studying them carefully, like orchestration and harmony and all these things, really helped me to understand why they work. So then when you adapt this to film scoring or when you get a job, you can say, yeah, I'm confident doing that, you know? Because all the other technical stuff, the programs and all of that, you know, I didn't take classes for any of this, but I learned to do when I had to. You know, and they go, and I said, they asked me, do you know how to do this? Yes. And I go on, and now with YouTube, you can watch 10,000 videos and figure it out to an extent that you can do it. And then just you just do it. But when it comes to the craft of composing, that's something you have to practice in detail, you know, and be diligent about, you know? I want to, uh, I want to ask one more question, and um, thanks for, for kind of sharing both sides of this uh, thing in our, our chat now. Uh, mm -hmm. both as a as a player and as a composer i i guess i want to finish with the experience of being in the room when you feel something kind of magical happening as you're playing and there mm -hmm. are composers i think is is where you know a lot of that magic comes from but also the energy that is in the room and everyone's starting to somehow you know sync up a little bit in the way even though everything's supposed to be in sync but just that kind of i wanted to kind of ask you to to describe what that's like being in a place mm -hmm. where you realize oh that i'm part of this bigger thing that's all coming together in this moment 
I think the thing is that when you hear that, it's, um, it's, it's interesting because in the moment, you many times can get goosebumps just from how good it sounds. But also, it's like uh, your ability gets heightened. So you kind of anticipate things more both emotionally and technically, and all of a sudden you're playing better and you're playing with more uh, intent and with more uh, accuracy. And, you know, it's just, there's just, I would say it sort of feels like uh, you're looking into the future of each note that is coming, you know? And you're moving together as a group. So, for example, there's like a big moment, you know, a big soaring melody. And there's a moment where it just seems right to do a slide. And there's nothing more satisfying than all of a sudden, we don't discuss it, but all the violins slide together, you know, and the same kind of slide. And it just feels so satisfying. Uh, you know, it feels like biting on an amazing piece of food. And you're like, I think oh, athletes yeah. call it getting in the zone. And there, there are Absolutely. times where you zone. know the shot's going in before you even shoot it because you're so exactly. hot and, like, no one can stop you. But it, it doesn't happen all the time. You really have to no. get into that zone. And then, and then it's hard to get mm -hmm. out of it sometimes. Yeah, and, and, you know, there's times that, you know, there's days that I arrive and the group is just sounding great. And from beginning to end, the session is just amazing. I remember one of the experiences that I had like this was, um, this wasn't a session, but it was for a live concert of, the music of Kingdom Hearts. And it was a great group. And a lot, pretty much everybody in the band was studio musicians. And that play on all these big films. There was something about that day. And the, we played the opening theme. You know, we didn't have a click or anything, but we had a conductor that had a click in their ear. And the second we played the main theme, everybody just played out with such like intent. And for me, it was like, wow, this group sounds great. And then the rest of the session went, and the music was not easy, but everything was just sounding so good all the time, you know? And it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting experience for sure. Is there a feeling of... It feels of... like an almost supernatural kind of thing where you're mm -hmm. not, you can't totally explain what is happening, but, yeah. uh, but mm -hmm. there's definitely something, something incredible happening. Yeah, the, the, absolutely. The, the studio musician position is really... A, an elite group and I imagine mm -hmm. that there's always people wanting to get into that situation in that position what kind of pressure do you feel every time you play to make sure that you're you know if you have a bad day do you leave going god I hope nobody noticed because that there must be absolutely. that feeling of of getting replaced at any point absolutely and you know I'm still pretty young and like uh in the scene I'm not like as established as some of the older players, but I do enough. And it is, uh, but even for some older players, it's the reality, you know, it's, there's no set jobs. These are not contracts. So you always sort of have to keep up your skill. And uh, yeah. What do they say? Every sense. job could be your last. Ex that's exactly right. And, uh, and, you know, I feel like you always start a session with a little bit of everybody, with a little bit of hesitance. And part of it is that, you know, part of it is that uh, fear. Um, there's also people play very safe all the time uh, until we're comfortable or allowed or the composer says, go for it. Or, you know, um, because there's always that nerve of like, oh, my God, if I mess up, what's going to happen? 
the reality is that like it's okay to mess up, you know, as long as you don't do it four times in a row or you keep <laughs> doing it, you fix a mistake, you know. But there's gonna be mistakes. I mean, it happens all the time. It's uh, I mean, it, it's, it's it's natural, you know. Does we Bruce try Dukov to know. make mistakes? Everybody makes mistakes. <laughs> Even Bruce. <laughs> well, I would say Bruce makes no mistakes. I'll say that. <laughs> no, but yeah. listen, the reality is that like the mistakes can be something as simple as like, uh, you know, I'm counting and then maybe for whatever reason, my click kind of stopped. You know, sometimes that happens. Just so blame it on the you, click. Yeah. You try to keep playing. Yeah. In fact, no, but you try to keep playing and then you enter early or you didn't enter or something else you're thinking about another section and uh, how to figure that out. And then you miss an entrance or those are the kind, honestly, none of the mistakes are mistakes that are going to stop a session. Usually when the mistake is something that is going to stop a session, many times it's something that was in the part that was a mistake in the part that we misread, you know? That must be so, hard to be playing and make a mistake. Because if you're by yourself, you'd be like, ah, let me start over. But you have to just keep going, even though you know you, you made going. the mistake. The thing is that, you know, classical musicians and jazz musicians are trained to just keep going. You know, we cannot linger on the fact, because if you're playing with an orchestra, let's say, whether you're a soloist or in the section, the music is going to keep going. You know, you cannot go in the middle of a concert and be like, Hey guys, sorry, we're gonna start again from the beginning. See, my my bow would be in the audience. I'd be walking around, pacing. <laughs> I would have. I'm not cut out for you that. You wouldn't get invited back. <laughs> I'd be like, well, oh, guys, that one's on me. Take two, everybody. Get some popcorn. We'll be right back. Well, you know, like I feel like a lot of players deal with performance anxiety at one point or other in their lives, and then yeah. you learn to get to push yourself through it and get past it. And that's part of the skill as well, too, uh, especially in a, in a high stakes situation like uh, studio playing, you know, because, I mean, these budgets are large, you know, and time is literally money in this case. Yeah. You know, so, uh, I mean, I know that uh, Bill Ross is so good at knowing how much things will take and he has it down to the cent, how much each minute, each second of session cost so his yeah. idea is like try to waste the least time possible and as players we have to be aware of that too so for example we you know we'll chit chat a little bit if in between takes but only generally it'll be about like a quick joke or something that is about the music that i'm asking you know but we try to stay as focused as possible so that the second that uh that click starts again we're prepared you know because many times it goes like okay four or eight clicks into 39 and you need to know where 39 is and you go you know there's not much time you know it's just you go you have to be ready well i and, found uh, this conversation super yeah interesting because th <laughs> this is stuff that i mean i've been around i've been in those rooms but you don't really know the meat of it until you have a discussion like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about the you know the writing of these things and and all of the many tools that composers have, but the actual application of how the music becomes the music that you know, you know, mm -hmm. it goes from sheet music into or or whatever something in a, on a computer screen mm -hmm. into uh, into being played by real people, and that becomes you know the 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 canon, the ultimate version of that music that 
ends up existing forever mm-hmm. um, and becomes a soundtrack usually or some something maybe mixed slightly differently, but the same same music. Yeah, um, it's a really really cool. I, I do also want to mention um, Fernando's album is uh, out for Blockbuster is out. It's on Lakeshore Records. It's the first original podcast score that uh, that Lakeshore Records did or that anybody has done yeah. for that matter. <laughs> That's um, so cool, so man! Congrats on that. Very for, cool uh, for that, Fernando. Well, thank you, Matt. Too, yeah, I obviously great. love, but yeah. um, but Fernando did such amazing things on that. So be sure. When to are they going to press that on vinyl, Fernando? We got to push that, man. Well, that would be awesome, but <laughs> there's consideration. Donate more <laughs> to Blockbuster so we can mo- do more stuff like that. <laughs> maybe maybe you can do the box well. set as you get more uh, seasons going. Yeah, exactly. We slowly build out more and more uh, collectible set. things. Uh, yeah, yeah. But that was a really fun experience too. You know, uh, talking about all the all of these we talked about today, trying to creating that soundtrack, the feel that would have having the players in a room. That's you know. Oh yeah. Well, we were talking about yeah. the modes and you know <laughs> various you know like things that that are only a small part of the overall feel of something. But yeah. Um, but each of those compile and become something really original and unique. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, and I, w- uh, I want to thank you too. Most fun I, part of the process. As a Z-list actor, you really heightened my four lines, and <laughs> I it, it really shined. At least an E. Okay. E-list. Wow. But no, it, it, your music was terrific in that series, and thank you, Ken. It's just another reason why, and obviously I'm a little biased because I know you guys, but it's the best podcast you know, narrative creation like that, that exists because of the cinematic qualities of mm-hmm. the, the sound design and the, and the score in that. I mean, there's nothing like that. So you, you guys crushed it and uh, I'm a big fan. It's, it's great to finally meet you, even though it's likewise on, on Riverside here. Yeah. I just see your, your, uh, I see your bunny all the time. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Kenny has a, uh, if you follow Kenny on Twitter, and Instagram too, right? He yeah. has his own his my my bunny's Twitter account has eleven hundred followers. He's oh my like god, a, he's blowing up, have him man. On this, I know wow. he's gonna get his own score soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, Fernando, uh, oh, one other thing I wanted to mention: if we're having any technical issues for mm-hmm. this recording, we're testing out a new uh, mobile version of this. I think it it looks like it all worked well, but uh, just in case it didn't, cut us some slack, um, and uh, we'll get it worked out the next time around. But I think it all recorded really well. So um, that said, thank you, Fernando. Thank uh, you for having me. A ton me. of fun, as always, chatting with you. Yeah. And uh, we'll do this again at some point. Sounds good, guys. Thank you Thanks, for having dude. me. Bye. Thank you.